everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of our ADN podcast. I'm so excited to kick off the new year with a new mini-series about DAOs. And so what better candidate to speak about DAOs than Stefan, uh, who's a co-founder at Gnosis. Hi, Stefan. Thanks for having me. All right. I think we have with us here uh, somebody who's been around for since literally since the beginning of Ethereum. So we're going to have a lot to unpack, right? The Gnosis's journey, right? All the way from like ICO and then how it became a DAO and then all the various extensions and ecosystem uh, that has been built around it. Uh, but before we go into it, since it's the beginning of the DAO series, I'd like to just touch very quickly on you know, DAOs in general. How do you define them? You know, it's supposed to be originally kind of like purely organizations run on code. But I think today it's kind of already euphemism that uh, it's organizations that are run using token governance, right? Kind of like everything that's uh, non-automated with smart contracts that needs humans, we call it a DAO. <laughs> so I, I love to hear your thoughts, Stefan, on uh, how do you define a DAO and you think the term is still relevant today or how has it evolved? I think for me, if I if people ask me what is a DAO, then uh, usually I describe it as um, kind of a set of rules uh, which are... Uh, implied through code, but also uh, social norms within the group of how to coordinate an organization and how to come to decision making. And I think this is like a yeah. On, on this level, I think it applies to uh, to yeah all DAOs that are currently existing. So it's kind of abstract. And um, of course, like uh, on Ethereum, we are using tokens uh, to show ownership and also to vote on proposals. In terms of the original term, decentralized autonomous organization, um, I would say this term is very misleading. Uh, I think people were thinking of something like Skynet, uh, controlling these organizations and autonomously run them. Uh, that's de facto not the case. Uh, obviously, today, all of those DAOs are run by humans. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I think the term is quite misleading. What I'm really excited about with DAOs is that those social norms and uh, the rules which are coded within smart contracts, um, that we are able to iterate on them very quickly. So mm -hmm. if you look at traditional organizations, companies, structures that are existing for a very long time, um, then it's very difficult to make any change and, uh, and kind of change how the organization is running. And... Um, that's a pity because many organizations are not very good at uh, organizing or not very efficient. And so I think we have a good chance with DAOs to, uh, to iterate a lot faster uh, and be able to just come up with better designs of how to organize uh, and how to, yeah, how to more efficiently run organizations and be more inclusive. And that's, I think, what is really exciting about DAOs. Right, right. Yeah, what I hear from you is about a set of code or rather like a, it almost sounds like a, a mission Right, or a common understanding, a common goal that everybody works towards, and either via code or via human coordination, right? And in a way that's iterative uh, and also uh, like with like, inclusive uh, participation. So, uh, as, as we know, actually, Gnosis has gone through a lot of iteration, uh, but actually didn't start off as a DAO, right? I think Gnosis, uh, I'm not sure whether that was always the intention. I'm sure uh, it was meant to be like an organization, uh, but it started off with an ICO, and I'm not sure whether back then, you know, what how different the vision was from today, right? It was a huge ICO back in the day. There was a Dutch auction and 
300 million was raised in a very short period of time because it's uh, supposed to be come down by like people just uh, bought out bought out all of it. And so I'd love to just hear your story, Estefan, about you know, how was Gnosis born and uh, like just walk us through the journey, you know, from there uh, and how do we get to where Gnosis is today? Right, right. Just one small correction. Like we did not raise 300 million. We raised only 12 million, but as oh. a... Sorry, the German valuation. Million dollar valuation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah, the journey of Gnosis started, um, yeah, even before Gnosis, me and my co-founder, uh, we have been building yeah, different ideas or projects together in the past, also on Bitcoin. And we also did sort of a prediction market platform um, using Bitcoin as collateral. And then we, we saw uh, the potential in Ethereum to do it way more decentralized and started um, building... Yeah, a decentralized prediction market platform on Ethereum. And uh, then we met Joseph Lugan, uh, who just at that point uh, started Consensus. And he convinced us to do what then was named Gnosis uh, as part of Consensus. Um, but since the very early days, our goal was to uh, yeah, to do a spin-off, to become independent of Consensus. And uh, yeah, we obviously we saw Augur kind of... Um, pioneering the token sales. I think Augur did the first ICO on Ethereum. And after they succeeded, we decided uh, we also yeah, would like to do such a token sale and um, prepared everything. And then, yeah, we started 2015 at Consensus. And then 2017, we were able to do the successful spin-off from Consensus, uh, did the ICO. And uh, yeah, and at that time, again, like the term DAO already existed, obviously, people were talking about DAOs. And I think we also had a vague vision of how Gnosis could eventually become a DAO. But at that time, it was obviously way too early. Um, we hardly had any product. <laughs> we didn't have any users. And uh, so, um, yeah, I think we first had the task to find product market fit before we could even think of uh, decentralizing anything. And so... For a long time, um, yeah, for a long time, um, we did not see uh, the benefit of like really turning Gnosis into a DAO until recently, uh, which probably also has to do with like the bear market in, in which anyways, it's difficult to find uh, like a good product market fit. And so, yeah, it took a while, but ultimately we saw a huge benefit in in not having this top-down structure where where yeah everything is defined by very few people but rather try to do the opposite do it bottom up uh, and let more people take responsibilities uh, and it's also like a change which happened within the uh, gnosis organization itself first before we also moved um yeah moved the structure into a dao structure so at the beginning we uh again like it was really mostly top-down management um, with different projects that we started. And uh, yeah, I think about maybe one year ago or one and a half years ago, we already decided to to give teams more independence. So they they themselves had more ownership. And I think we saw that they were moving much faster <laughs> and uh, became more successful. And so it kind of led to the, to, to the, um, to the thought that, yes, we should, more broadly also try to uh, hand off ownership and um, yeah, hand off responsibilities. And uh, this will most likely lead to 
a much faster development of gnosis. Mm, mm. Right. I'd like to pick on something you mentioned just now about a product market fit, right? So almost, it uh, sounds like what you're saying is you kind of need to have something that is valuable, then you uh, decentralize it. So in that process of kind of rapid iteration, perhaps it could make more sense to be kind of more centralized as a corporation while you're trying to iterate very quickly. And then once it kind of uh, takes off, then you need to make sure it's resilient by uh, including more people in its kind of uh, improvement as well as governance, right? Uh, is, is that uh, kind of the approach you would recommend? Oh, totally. Yeah, I think if you, at the beginning, when you're in your project, um, you have to iterate fast. Uh, you will get a lot of feedback. A lot of changes have to be done. And if you have to go through a formal governance process for any of those changes, then this, this will just hold you back. And uh, yeah, it will most likely fail uh, and it will cause a lot of frustration. So yes, I agree. Like it makes sense to first really focus with a small team on solving one problem, making sure that you have product market fit. And once you have product market fit, it will be also become more obvious like what kind of responsibilities you can hand off to more people because your whole organization will grow. Um, and hopefully you have some community engagement and uh, then you can also start like handing off simple small tasks to the community and um, yeah, over time, hopefully uh, have more people uh, working for this organization and then eventually yeah become decentralized and then obviously also a token can help to align incentives uh that's also what we are now doing uh, with our decentralized exchange so uh the exchange itself become a spin-off and uh, by becoming a spin-off this exchange cowswap will also uh, create its own token to allow for this bigger decentralization to have more teams working towards the goal of making it the best exchange and uh and yes, I think that's the right way to go. Yes, indeed. So yeah, indeed, I think that's very aligned with what we have been also kind of sharing with a lot of founders, which is the idea of progressive decentralization, right? I think there's some thoughts around, say, uh, DAO first, uh, you know, but what does that mean, right? Realistically speaking, uh, you still need to have a core team that will iterate very quickly and then perhaps uh, decentralize gradually as well. Let's say like Martin Grants uh, and then later on some sort of like bounties and hackathons and eventually kind of the core protocol features and the governance itself, like the meta governance. Uh, but if I, if I may, I still like to just uh, pick on the iterative approach a little bit, uh, because this is often a quite a sticky point with founders and not just out uh, in crypto, but also outside, which is how do you know how long to persist, right? Uh, how long, how much to try before you kind of move on to the next one, before you give up uh, for, for Gnosis itself. I understand that the original vision of like prediction markets, uh, was a core feature and then that's what the fundraise was for, right? And then uh, there was also an emphasis on using it in the governance as well, in, in Futarki. And then later on, there were quite a few products, you know, just, just mentioning some names, right? Like, like DXDAO or like OWL, kind of like stable token and like Dutch X kind of thing. So uh, over time, uh, these you there must have been some sort of decision that was made to either spend less time or kind of like shut down or consolidate some of these efforts, right? So how do you then strike that balance between, you know, persisting uh, versus iterating? Yeah, very good question. So I mentioned this before, like at the beginning or for a very long time, Gnosis was very uh, top down in terms of decision-making. And I think it was at the beginning also the right approach simply because, um, we had to hire a lot of new people which were coming from uh, other industries that were not really yet familiar with Web3. And um, yeah, and uh, obviously, as you mentioned, 
Gnosis CICO uh, was specifically done to raise capital to create prediction market platforms. And um, yeah, we try to be very careful uh, also about regulation. And so we applied for a license to operate prediction markets regulated uh, in Gibraltar. And it turned out that this uh, was a process that took forever. <laughs> so we actually never got the license in the end. And um, and at some point, we just had to, uh, yeah, to decide to stop working on this regulated approach. It was taking way too much time. Um, it also builds up frustration within the team. If you're building technology that you can never really use in production, it feels kind of useless. And uh, you have to be very mindful of also, obviously, motivation of your employees and everyone working on on those projects. And um, and then, uh, obviously, time is also uh, yeah an opportunity cost. <laughs> uh, the I think in the bear market, we didn't feel really uh, like that much because it was a bear market where attention was very limited. Uh, right now, like since we are in a bull market, it's way more competitive. Um, you have to be very, very mindful about your time. In the bear market, it feels like you have more time to just try things out. And if it doesn't work out, it's not so bad. Um, but I would also say in hindsight, uh, we should have stopped some of the projects earlier. Where, um, or like, I think it makes sense to set yourself like some sort of deadlines where certain things have to be met. Otherwise, you just call it a day. And if you don't set those, then you can just continue, always continue doing those. And I think in terms of uh, working on regulated prediction markets, that's something we could have stopped earlier. Um, we didn't give up with prediction markets at, um, by also stopping working on regulated prediction markets. We actually just shifted our focus more towards fully decentralized prediction markets, which like at the time when NOSA started, the technology was not ready yet to actually offer fully decentralized prediction markets. Or if you would do this in this huge compromises like Orgadit. Uh, but then like uh, about maybe two years ago, when we uh, started to work on fully decentralized prediction markets, technology was ready to allow a good user experience while still being decentralized. And that's when we started working on Omen, like the fully decentralized prediction market. Unfortunately, if you look back on prediction markets today, then you have to realize that no matter if you do it regulated, unregulated, um, or however you want to approach prediction markets, none of them was really a big success. And uh, this is true not only for Gnosis, but Orga, uh, even like the most popular prediction market today, I think is poorly market, is struggling to get meaningful adoption. And so I think it's fair to say that um, prediction market as a whole were probably overhyped. And uh, yeah, the hype did not was not really justified. And I think there are many reasons for this. One is um, if you think like wh what kind of motivates you to participate in prediction market, then I think there are two reasons. One is pure entertainment or speculation, uh, like for example, um, betting on, on sports games um, or, or, or like. And I think for this, we have already much, I mean, I feel like this market's already satisfied. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of speculation going on crypto anyways, and the upside, potential upside in many of those investments is much higher than they could possibly be in the prediction market. And so 
yeah, it did not get the attention, uh, like those markets did not get the attention and volumes that people were hoping for. And uh, yeah, the other markets I think are like people where, where some people feel like they have insider knowledge. So, um, and those markets actually, they work quite well, but there are not that many that work well. And we, we bootstrapped one of those, uh, which was getting quite some attention. And this was about the uh, ETH2 launch date. <laughs> so yeah, there was a public, um, public date, I think announced by the Ethereum Foundation when the launch should happen. And we created and funded a prediction market um, where you could bet on if this deadline would be met or not. And um, yeah, and surprisingly, this market contradicted the public belief <laughs> that this would be released on time. And then this uh, sparked some discussions on why is this delayed? Like, uh, why, why do we still publish this date if it's not possible? And why it's not possible? Uh, is this underfunded and so on? And um, yeah, it was pretty cool to see this discussion, uh, which was definitely triggered also by this market. And uh, in the end, I think even Ethereum 2 core developers started participating on those prediction markets, which you obviously want because they are the insiders, right? They, they know, they should know uh, when you can, um, yeah, when ETH 2 will be released. And um, yeah, and ultimately it, it was on time. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it, it just showed like how you can utilize those markets to, to spark some interesting discussions and surface information, which otherwise would be. Hidden. And, um, so I think those markets work, but there's just not that many interesting topics, um, uh, mm. within the Ethereum ecosystem where those markets, uh, get those, this attention. Um, so I think for example, uh, this is two market, which obviously is a very, very important topic for the entire Ethereum ecosystem. <laughs> This got a decent volume, but if you compare the volume to any other decentralized exchange on Ethereum, then it's still neglectable. Mm -hmm. And uh, just from a pure business standpoint, it's nothing super interesting. And um, yeah, that's why we at Gnosis actually finally decided to uh, pause this for now. Hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't want to pursue, pursue prediction markets at all anymore. Actually, we also still want to support teams that that work on prediction markets. And I still think there's a potential um, to also uh, get entertainment markets more popular. We also have to think of like most of the prediction markets, they started in a bear market. Mm. Uh, again, like in the bear market, generally have a lot less attention. It's much more difficult to build anything because you don't get this feedback from users as much as you would like to have. So. I would say there's still a possibility for teams to succeed with prediction markets, um, but mm. our focus has clearly shifted towards those products that actually got product market fit and the attention that allowed us to yeah, successfully develop them. And those are two. One is CowSwap and the other is Safe. All right. Yes. So let's get right into that, right? So Safe and CowSwap, uh, as you mentioned, have had incredible adoption in the recent years or so, right? I think... Uh, Gnosis Safe probably has more than 140 billion worth of assets uh, that is locked in those uh, multi-signature contracts. And CowSwap has seen more than 4.6 billion in volume. And so like for, for uh, you know, originally not working on these to now having two incredibly successful products, like how did that actually happen? How do you make this transition? And how does that change the vision or positioning of Gnosis DAO? 
Right. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting how this uh, actually started. So for uh, yeah, the Gnosis Safe previously, the Gnosis Multisig started because we ourselves had the need to have a more secure wallet solution. So at the time when the Gnosis ICO happened, there was already one multi-signature wallet available, um, written, I think, by Gavin when he was still part of the Ethereum Foundation. And when this wallet was written, uh, ERC-20 tokens didn't even exist yet. So <laughs> it was so early that it was really only used for, um, yeah, for holding Ether. And obviously, when we sold uh, GNO tokens, um, we actually raised Ether, but we also had significant amount of GNO tokens. So we needed a wallet uh, which was able to secure ERC-20 tokens. And that's why uh, I started writing a new contract, which would exactly allow to do this. And uh, maybe it was also a bit simpler to read. Uh, so it was easy for every developer to, to read through this contract and understand what's going on and to trust that this contract does what they actually expect. And um, yeah, and so we did it for our own ICO. And then I think I saw that Gollum was the next project that actually had the same needs because they did an ICO. They raised, I think, even something like 400 or 500,000 Ether. And uh, all of this went straight into this multisig wallet. And so organically, um, yeah, this wallet built up trust within the community and uh, then was used by all the other ICOs to come. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this was a success, which yeah, was yeah, much bigger than with the product that we actually raised the money for. <laughs> so no one cared really about the prediction markets, but everyone was using the wallet. And that's why we decided to, um, yeah, to also continue developing it again, like we needed our ourselves anyways. It's maybe also a good lesson learned that, uh, it's always great to have a customer, even better if you're your own customer. <laughs> that makes it especially easy to develop the product. Um, and this was definitely the case for the Multisig wallet. We had this ICO successfully done and started hiring. And then we also started specifically hiring for uh, yeah, people for, for working on this specific product and also safe. And uh, yeah, first we tried to actually focus more on a different user group. Like with the multisig, it was very clear the user group was only teams uh, and funds and organizations. At the beginning, actually, for the Gnosis-Safe, we tried to focus more on the individual user because we knew like the Gnosis multisig already covered like the other user group. Hmm. Um, but it turned out, I think also partially because of the bear market um, and, yeah, and people mostly using MetaMask still even today. It was difficult to get meaningful adoption for uh, yeah for the solution built for the individual user, and so in the end, um, we pivoted back to the original use case um, mm. of organizations, and this uh, also took a while. Like it took a while for us to um, to offer a better solution than our first product, and make people move because there's there are very few products where people have to have more trust into than multisig. And so we had this trust in the old multisig, but it took a while uh, until users um, felt um, that the Gnosis Safe uh, had the same reliability and trust trustworthiness as the old product. And uh, I think it took like one or two years even until the safe surpassed the old multisig in total value locked. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think then we were very 
uh, fortunate, obviously, to be ready when the bull market started and everything exploded. And obviously, like, uh, multisigs are not only important to to secure, uh, like, large amount of funds, but they're also super important um, to control all kind of admin functionality in any kind of DeFi protocols. And uh, so, yeah, the amount of saves created and used and TVL, everything skyrocketed. And fortunately with this also the developer community around it. So many people and projects started extending the save. And we also tried to build the save into a platform which would allow others to participate in it. So we created like these, uh, this layer of safe apps which allowed uh, third-party developers to build their their dApps right into the Nosa Safe experience, which is a just much better user experience um, for those operating Nosa Safes. And then also on the smart contract level, uh, we allowed extensibility of the of the safe, which ultimately led to uh, yeah led to interesting new developments. Uh, the most like one of the exciting or recent ones was Zodiac itself. Um, or like modules which were created within Zodiac, which allowed to uh, extend the Nosa Safe for governance. Um, we mentioned this before. You mentioned this before. Uh, this progressive decentralization, uh, which should be done for projects. And uh, if you look at how organizations are created today, then many of them just start with a simple multisig, uh, where like a few founders get together, and uh, to make sure that not a single user has all the power over the organization, you start with the multisig um, to store funds and maybe upgradability of the system. And uh, obviously it's quite limited in terms of how decentralized multisig can be. Yeah, uh, I love to just kind of like position it a little bit, right? Because what I hear from you basically, uh, I think you've been saying, or people in the DAO have been saying this, that Gnosis Safe and the suite of products around it have become the minimum viable DAO suite, right? That you need, right? First, you just need to uh, form capital and then because the way that uh, it is built where it's extensible or upgradable where other people can actually contribute to it uh, and you can use zodiac to continuously upgrade your own uh, way of running your dao it becomes this uh it, the product itself becomes you know more open to decentralization because other people can create parts of it and you can continue to change how you use it right so uh like the whole concept of uh, growing and decentralizing is part of the product and part of the organization as well Yes, agree. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly how we see it too. Like you, you start with a save as your minimal viable DAO, and uh, as soon as you see the, you kind of have this product market fit, and you want to continuously decentralize, and you can, um, yeah, let your token holders take over certain governance functions, and eventually, uh, fully uh, withdraw all the like original signers of this multisig, and then you have de facto. Uh, token holder governance. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I love to just explore how this was done within the Gnosis DAO, right? Because, like you mentioned, at some point you kind of like feel that okay, there's sufficient product market fit. You know, the way the product is built also allows for uh, third-party developers to kind of uh, build on top of it or build for it as well. And then at some point you decide that okay, actually let's kind of create a separate team or maybe think about spinning off and uh, having its own brand and identity. So how do you do this as, as part of the DAO? Right? It feels like a, a natural kind of progression that, you know, uh, is sub DAO kind of forms and it, it spins off on its own. How was that journey for you? And what are some lessons you'd like to share? Right. Yeah. So here, 
actually kind of, again, we had this case of um, we are this organization that wants to turn into a DAO, <laughs> um, but we don't really have the right tools yet. So we started implementing some of them ourselves. So obviously there were already previously, um, yeah, previously uh, governance frameworks. Uh, we actually worked a lot together with DAO stack in the past. And uh, we also took a look at, uh, at compound governance, other governance, and so on. Um, but we realized that for our use case, none of them were like perfect. And um, at the same time, coming from Nosa Safe, we saw the possibility to extend the safe uh, for governance purposes. And so we were thinking of how can we make um, how can we make DAO participation as inclusive as possible um, while not compromising on and not compromising on security of, of the DAO itself. Um, because in the DAO, you always have this issue of um, or like this tension between um, you want to be agile, you want to be fast. At the same time, you don't want to open the attack surface for very few members to compromise the system. Mm. And um, yeah, so with 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 Zodiac, we we started working on a module which is called uh, it's now called Reality. <laughs> and uh, the way it works is that it allows you to make off-chain uh, votes on-chain executable. And off-chain votes, I think, are very important. Or like we saw that there is a huge success of off-chain votes with snapshots, right? Like most DAOs right now, they use snapshot because they, um, yeah, everyone can vote. It doesn't cost you any gas. And uh, that's why I think it was so popular and inclusive and uh, got a lot of participation, which I think is important to make the DAO resilient. So we didn't want to compromise on this. At the same time, um, we also wanted to find a way how we can make the results of those uh, votes on-chain executable. So that's something that Compound, for example, allows you to do but in compound, you have to vote on chain, and so every every proposal just costs a lot of gas. And yeah, with with Zodiac, we we built this first module, which effectively allowed you to use any sort of uh, off chain um, consensus to make it on chain to make transactions on chain ex executable. And it's using so in, in simple words, how it, how it works is uh, let's say there is a snapshot poll and um, the Paul agrees that we send 10 ether, um, yeah, that we send 10 ether to another address, for example. Then you can take this transaction and you can go to the Zodiac module and say, yeah, I want to execute this, and you have to put up a bond. And um, then it's time locked for a certain period of time. And in this time frame, anyone can challenge uh, your proposal <laughs> uh, by doubling your bond. And so then again, like the time of execution is delayed. And so everyone, everyone else can then again challenge uh, the challenge, the challenger <laughs> and uh, double the bond. And so it's a very effective way of, um, yeah, of on the one hand, allowing to have a fast and cheap way of executing on-chain uh, transactions while making sure it's very difficult to, to compromise the system and very expensive.
Hmm. So did you use these products when uh, now that, you know, CowSwap is actually spinning, spinning off as an independent product and independent DAO in itself, right? So uh, did you use uh, all of these and go through these steps and including Zodiac? How was that experience? Yeah, not yet. So CowSwap and those save us at the very beginning. So the CowSwap DAO doesn't even exist yet, but I expect the team to be using those save and Zodiac. Uh, we had this experience, however, with Gnosis DAO. So Gnosis DAO, we first decided we want to launch Gnosis DAO. We want to make much more transparent what Gnosis does. And um, we start with a Gnosis Safe. So we created a Gnosis Safe uh, with a nice uh, address, which includes the word DAO at the beginning. <laughs> and, uh, and um, yeah. And then later on, uh, worked on Zodiac to make sure that this safe can eventually be upgraded to something that is more decentralized and that is actually uh, controlled by um, by token holders. And this is a, like this was a proposal to Gnosis DAO, one of the first to enable, at that point it was still called SafeSnap or Gnosis DAO and allow token holders to take control over this DAO. And yeah, and I expect the same will happen also uh, with CowSwap and Gnosis Safe, of course. Nice, nice. So we're literally talking about the cutting edge here, right? Because reality is just kind of like being built and you are about to be the first user uh, as we speak right. uh, about, about this. Uh, so I, I want to just um, zoom in on one particular kind of incident or uh, journey that the DAO had, had to go through, right? As a collective uh, entity, which is, of course, the Gnosis Chain merger. Uh, well, now called Gnosis Chain. And I understand that must have been quite an exercise for the DAO itself, right? Because it required not just the coordination of Gnosis DAO itself, but also with the XDAI community, right? And then deciding on what are the terms, how the process will be done, negotiating the different numbers, and then like eventually executing it on chain. And I even saw today that one of the DAOs uh, said, they're like, oh shit, we didn't... Uh, uh, stop it in time that we can't get an airdrop so like now we have to go back and like oh do we do we uh, <laughs> do something about that right so it seems to be then a lot of moving parts uh, and different people that you have to align right so would you like to share some experiences of uh, how that was done and what learnings you would like to share with other DAOs on mergers or uh, coordinating your own DAO and working with other DAOs right yeah so the idea of merging with XDAI I think came up maybe like uh, six to eight months ago. So it's really a while back where this was mostly idea that was discussed at the beginning um, between like the core XDI team and the core Gnosis team. Um, and at least for Gnosis, it was very obvious that, uh, well, we, we have Gnosis DAO and um, like uh, this is a proposal that can only be executed over Gnosis DAO, obviously. Like uh, the way this merger effectively worked was that um, Nosis DAO um, took some of its GNO supply and uh, allowed stake token holders, so stake is the token of the XDAI network, uh, to yeah to convert those tokens to GNO tokens. And uh, that's already like just on the implement, like just on the on the rough terms, actually already the biggest part of the deal. <laughs> So uh, it's very transparent. Um, there's no closed door deals uh, in this. It's really a very transparent offer uh, that was initially, of course, um, proposed or like negotiated uh, between the core teams of Gnosis and XDAI. 
but it was clear that in order to make this proceed, um, we have to get the backing of both communities. So in case of Gnosis, it's clear. We have Gnosis DAO. It has to go through a vote anyways. In terms of the XDAO community, uh, XDAO actually doesn't have a DAO, uh, but they have a very strong community. And so it was very clear that, um, yeah, we, we have to make sure that the community is aligned. And so we wrote down this proposal, we made it public on the Gnosis forum and shared it widely within the XDAI community. And then also uh, had a community call with the XDAI community and it was pretty clear that um, like uh, seemingly many <laughs> were not very happy about this proposal. <laughs> and um, since the main part of this was this conversion between uh, stake and GNO, most people were concerned about the price and they were like, yeah, in their opinion, um, stake token was so undervalued uh, that this should not be done and that stake would be better off uh, without Gnosis. Um, and yeah, of course, and we had this community call and we tried to explain what the benefits are of merging and merging those teams, merging the assets, having a much bigger leverage and making XDAI successful. And I think this already helped quite a bit to, to get more XDAI members aligned. Um, but ultimately, we also changed the offer a little bit. So we had another iteration on it. And uh, I think then most of the stake token holders were also happy. And then we proceeded, uh, like according to the rules of the Gnosis forum, uh, with first like a forum poll and then a snapshot poll. And uh, I think there was there were only like, I think two or three genome token holders voting against this proposal on the Gnosis side. Uh, on the stake token side, um, it was also a pretty positive outcome. I think 95% in the end uh, voted in favor of this proposal. And uh, yeah, and then we actually used um, the Gnosis DAO and the reality module that we mentioned, previously called SafeSnap, uh, to submit this proposal of um, yeah of like withdrawing the GNO tokens from the vesting contract, uh, fitting the swap contracts to allow stake token holders to swap, and we actually also integrate in this proposal a buyback options for GNO uh, for Ether. So this kind of allowed in this case. Stake token, stake token holders to have like a guaranteed uh, stake ether ratio as well. And yeah, and everything worked as expected, fortunately, <laughs> just from a technical perspective. But also, uh, we were of course very happy to see uh, both communities finally being happy with this proposal. And um, yeah, and I think it was the right decision. Um, now, XDAI has a much bigger leverage in negotiations and a much better perspective, a long-term perspective. And I think for Gnosis, um, yeah, for Gnosis also, it's great to have this, uh, yeah, to have this new playing field, this new platform that we can leverage now for all the applications that we built over the last couple of years. Um, and obviously both teams are very well connected in the ecosystem. And yeah, now it's, it's a very different challenge <laughs> uh, compared to what we did in the past. Uh, but it's also fun, and uh, yeah, we can see already like um, like some success in like starting new um, incentive programs, getting new applications up running, investing into new applications, which will also then potentially launch on Gnosis chain. Um, 
there was also one big change coming to XDAI with this merger, which was a change of the yeah of the technology stack that XDAI is using and also the narrative that comes with it. So uh, with the merger, we also decided to exchange the proof of stake algorithm um, and to follow closely the Ethereum 2 roadmap. So we launched our own beacon chain. So there is the Gnosis beacon chain up running and you can actually state your GNO to participate in, in validation. And um, yeah, so we kind of replicated what Ethereum wants to do. Um, but with the benefit that we are a smaller uh, network and we can be faster in applying changes simply because we can uh, take a little bit more risk. And so um, the narrative that we are shaping or like also how we see Gnosis, Gnosis chain is sort of like what uh, Kusama is maybe to Polkadot, mm-hmm. like a, a network which uh, is kind of accelerated Polkadot. <laughs> It can impl- implement changes faster. Uh, it's a scannery network that allows for um, for yeah for more testing, for faster roadmaps, and yeah, this is exactly what we like to be also for Ethereum. So we like to help Ethereum succeed. <clears throat> we like to work closely together with uh, these two uh, core development um, to see how we can help, like what kind of uh, things we can test to make also sure that the biggest event for Ethereum this year, which is the merger, obviously, uh, will succeed. Um, and yeah, in order to to help, we want to make sure that this merger will happen first on Gnosis chain um, to have this uh, peace of mind that this change will also be very successful for Ethereum mainnet. Wow, that's so cool. I love that you mentioned that it's uh, the parallel to Kusama and Polkadot. And it sounds almost as if like any changes that uh, Ethereum plans to implement, you will first do it uh, on Gnosis chain. So you'll actively replicate the exact upgrades and not just from the merge, but later on, there's so many phases of, of ETH2 that are coming, right? Like the, the whole like surge and verge and uh, <laughs> so on. And so all of this uh, will be done first on the Gnosis chain. So that's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a goal. Wow. Like we always want to kind of kind of say like in Ethereum front runner, where yeah we can be uh, faster in implementing. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, that's what we are working on. We also uh, have been working on Ethereum core development for a while within Gnosis by when we took over Open Ethereum, uh, which is now uh, maintained by the previous XDI now Gnosis chain team, and. Uh, yeah, and also have been supporting the Aragon team. So the Aragon team, not com- not to be confused with the Aragon team. <laughs> so the Aragon team is working on uh, like a high performance Ethereum one client. And uh, one promise that we would like to make with Gnosis Chain is that gas cost should not exceed uh, one cent per hundred thousand gas. And uh, if you look at uh, Binance Smart Chain today then this promise could not be held anymore. Mm. And I think even for Polygon, that's not the case anymore. So it is a promise which uh, is ambitious, um, but we hope by bringing together those technology players like Aragon and others uh, that we are able to, um, yeah, to keep this promise. Wow. Yeah. I can see now that uh, this move is not just kind of 
oh yeah, to acquire just another infrastructure piece, right? To empower your ecosystem. But actually it's couched in a larger vision of supporting the growth of Ethereum, uh, making sure that it's secure and also working together with all the other core developers and infrastructure pieces to help everybody kind of like progress faster, right? And keep the cost low as well for this testing ground. So I can see that this mission, I'm sure, actually energizes and unites more people and more developers uh, around the Gnosis ecosystem. Uh, if I may also just kind of like recap a few things that uh, Gnosis did during that process of uh, merging with uh, XDAI to become Gnosis Chain. You mentioned about like firstly stating the kind of like win-wins, right? What's in it for, for XDAI and what's in it for Gnosis and then communicating it that very clearly and that helped to ease a lot of the tension. Uh, and then after that, you know, being also open to feedback and iterating based on the whatever price point that uh, that they felt was more reasonable. And then of course, executing it uh, with tech that uh, you already have or that you have an advantage in. Uh, of course, the, the very interesting part there was the, the Gnosis buyback that was done to maintain a certain ratio with ETH to, to make sure that the price was pegged. And that is indeed something also that I would argue very few DAOs can do and argue that Gnosis is one of the very few DAOs that are, is in the position to do that uh, because uh, it has such a huge treasury, <laughs> uh, which I love to get into. I think most DAOs today hold a lot of native tokens, right? Most of it's native tokens. They give out grants and so on in the native tokens. But Gnosis being, being around for so long actually has a huge war chest of ETH, right? Originally it was 100, 150,000 ETH about uh, November 2020 or so. Uh, and then since then has even grown to 180,000 uh, as a result of yield farming. And I'm sure a lot of other DAOs or organizations would like crave to learn how was that done? How is it managed? Right? I understand it's kind of like done in partnership, a lot of yield farming. So how, how did Notice approach uh, treasury management, and how would you uh, advise or share your experience with other DAOs and how to do so? Yeah, good question. So yeah, we um, obviously all the funds that we raised was through our ICO at the very beginning. And um, yeah, we always did quite actively treasury management. So uh, we were, I would say, <laughs> fortunate or fortunate timing in, in trading. So we, we sold quite a bit of Ether at the top of the uh, first uh, yeah first bull market um, 2018 like like late 2017 beginning 2018 and this allowed us to um, yeah keep growing also through a bear market and and build everything we wanted we were never capital constrained and uh, yeah and then obviously DeFi summer happened and we saw a huge opportunity. And we, um, yeah, we participated, I would say, since the early days, like even Compound, uh, we, we already started doing some yield farming. But yeah, I think the, uh, it got much more intense when like things like SushiSwap ha happened and uh, we started also participating in those yield farms simply because we otherwise saw a huge opportunity cost that we didn't want to have. Like we had this capital, why not use it? And um, yeah, we we started also building up an internal team for it. So we had people dedicated uh, very quickly that were only focused on yield farming, finding new opportunities. Um, obviously, we were quite well connected in the space. So we also exchanged with other teams that were participating in yield farming of what kind of opportunities there are. And, uh, and we had also the advantage uh, of very few teams that we like contrary to many hedge funds, we actually have also a technical team. 
uh, and so we can evaluate risks on not only not only on an economical level but also on a smart contract level. And yeah, this definitely gave us an edge, uh, which we used for our benefit. Um, and yeah, and ultimately, uh, like all the funds that we raised, obviously we we saw them as being owned by Gnosis token holders. So the capital that we raised, uh, it's not our capital. It's the capital that is uh, that should belong to the uh, GNO token holders. And that's why it was always our goal to to make this very clear also by moving those funds into Gnosis DAO. And this is something that we promised, I think, in November uh, 2020. <laughs> And it took a while until we could uh, finally follow this promise simply because it is turned out to be way more complex than we thought it is uh, to do this transfer. But finally, we were able to transfer the assets. And now, um, yeah, the treasury is managed by Gnosis DAO. And it's the probably the most diversified treasury that any DAO has. And uh, if you exclude like the project tokens, uh, then I think it's also the largest uh, at this point of all DAOs. And um, yeah, and of course, uh, now Gnosis DAO has, has those funds and also Gnosis DAO should not let those funds being idling, <laughs> but instead use those funds. And that's why um, the team that has formed within Gnosis to do yield farming uh, kind of became independent of Gnosis, uh, created their own structure, their own team, and then made a proposal to Gnosis DAO to do the yield farming on their behalf. And uh, yeah, that's what's happening now. So now uh, Gnosis has very significant income just from passive income from from those yield farming activities. And uh, yeah, I'm quite excited to see what ideas the community has to use those uh, earnings, like uh, could be buybacks, could be investment into new teams. Um, we will see. Indeed, indeed. Wow, like that's such a story, right? Where it was kind of incubated in-house and then now spinning off. Uh, so I think that that must be a Carpet Key DAO, right? The, the team that was formed. Correct, uh, yes. And they have, they have rightly earning their revenue because they are, of course, proposing the strategies and uh, keeping monitoring on that uh, and then just taking a cut of uh, whatever that's on top. Uh, and I think that has allowed Gnosis to, like you mentioned, use it in prudent ways as well to invest in either products that are spinning off uh, or other uh, strategic projects that you'd like to support, right? I think a while ago, there was a uh, Gnosis ecosystem kind of a fund that was announced. Uh, and of course, recently, a couple of these projects, such as the Carpet Key, also received investment from the Gnosis DAO. So it seems almost like uh, the end game for, for DAOs is to, is to do that, right? Like gather people uh, along a mission, right? form capital, form people, and then as and when you can, you can spin off, you would also support them by letting the people form their own entities and support them financially. So uh, how would you kind of advise DAOs about uh, investing or doing kind of like token swaps even uh, with uh, other DAOs and, and sub-DAOs, right? How do you approach or think about this? Yeah, I think right now, if you look at like how are most DAOs currently, uh, or like what kind of assets do they have, then for most DAOs, they have over 90% of the treasury in their own token. And while I think it's a good idea to believe in yourself, <laughs> it's also uh, a good idea to diversify a little bit and not only um, to mitigate financial risks, 
but also for incentive alignments. So for Gnosis DAO, for me, it seems very obvious that uh, Gnosis DAO will have to do many token swaps with many projects and to give them also an incentive to, to run on Gnosis chain. So that's a very obvious one. Uh, we actually also did this in the past already through like when we still had assets in the, in the regular companies. Uh, and, um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's not only about financial risk, but obviously about partnerships and, um, and uh, be building like strategic lines with other teams. And there are also very interesting economic uh, in economical uh, possibilities of how to make these partnerships even stronger. So uh, what we have been doing in the past as well is not only doing a token swap, but also using those tokens and to yeah, provide liquidity on, an, on a decentralized exchange like Uniswap. So you swap those tokens, but effectively you bind the success uh, of this investment also to the economic success of the other team. And yeah, I think that's super interesting. And um, yeah, I would definitely recommend yeah, pretty much every other DAO to, to start thinking about token swaps. And uh, of course, be mindful about uh, what are the most important partners. Um, and also, uh, if you actually think that they are a good investment, uh, that the valuations make any sense. But uh, if that's the case, then yes. And I, I think for Nosen Style specifically, uh, we will also do this. Uh, we already have a list of teams um, where we think it makes sense to to approach them and, uh, and see if we can arrange a token swap. And so I hope I would hope that Nosis DAO can make really large token swaps with some other teams very soon. Um, and uh, yeah, by doing so, making sure that those teams have a bigger interest in Nosis succeeding, especially Nosis Chain, uh, and also obviously other and obviously also vice versa. So speaking of aligning interests, allow me to go on a slight tangent here uh, to, to kind of like very sneakily bring back a, a theme, which is, uh, you know, futarki, uh, because it's always been a kind of like, how do you have financial interest in like the positive uh, outcome of either a partnership or like a decision made in governance? And it very much aligns with prediction markets. So I have to ask you about it, given you're, you're one of the experts on the field, right? Uh, I know, understand Gnosis actually has tried it before with Gnosis Impacts, right? Uh, to actually predict the outcome on the price of Gnosis, a GNO, uh, for some decisions. How has that played out for you uh, in terms of like activating governance engagement as well as surfacing the truth? Uh, would you recommend people consider this approach? Yeah, no. So to be short, like it, it did not really foster any engagement. It was almost like uh, we created huge also arbitrage opportunities that no one ever exploited. So basically had a lot of money laying on the street, but no one was willing to pick it up. And uh, I think the reason was that people just did not really understand the concept um, or were too busy with other things to, to care about it. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to roughly explain, um, to explain how this generally works is quite interesting conceptually. So obviously in the prediction market, what you do is you are, um, yeah, you are predicting the outcome of future events and uh yeah it's a market so the outcomes uh, are effectively assets which have a market price between zero and one and you can trade them and uh yeah if it's if the price is close to one then effectively 
it, it means like it relates to the probability of the event and being close to 100%, uh, because you know you can redeem it uh, for the underlying asset. And yeah, Futaki is kind of applying prediction markets to governance, which is obviously super interesting in the context of, of DAOs. And uh, like one canonical example that people like to give is the fire the CEO <laughs> of Futaki market, where um, you are predicting uh, the stock price uh, of a company under the condition that you keep the CEO or that you fire the CEO. And then you can, let's say, the stock price at the end of this year, and then you can uh, keep those markets running for a month or so. And if after one month, the market predicts that the stock price at the end of the year will be much higher if you fire the CEO, then we decide to fire the CEO. <laughs> um, and uh, I think Martin was thinking of <laughs> doing this example for Gnosis, <laughs> but uh, we now finally, I think we haven't implemented this example, but um, yeah, it's, it's super interesting, uh, but in reality, I, it's sort of difficult for, for users to price outcomes, just the mental load that people have to put into understanding the market, the consequences, and what kind of price difference is justified is something that, um, yeah, it's just the user experience is just not good enough. Like it just takes too much mental load for, for users to understand uh, what is going on and what the consequences are that um, they just won't participate. <laughs> and I think we already have like the issue in governance generally that there's this voter apathy where yeah. people just don't really want to even just sign a message to vote even without gas costs. And yeah, if then you ask people to understand the concept of Utaki, understand, like make up their mind about what kind of price would be justified, they will just probably not do it. And um, that was the sad reality so far with Utaki, even though conceptually it's super interesting. Mm. Uh, in reality, it hasn't really taken off yet. Um, Maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there are still experiments that we could do. <laughs> uh, but again, like I think it's, um, yeah, it's, so far it has not been very successful. Right. That's quite unfortunate. And like you said, it is a bigger problem, right? The whole idea of voter apathy and how do you get people to understand the implications of even a proposal and then a vote to what they think is the best decision. So Futaki, I think idealistically, uh, it's meant to incentivize you to then uh, go through that uh, study and then align your skin in the game with that decision, right? So uh, without that incentive, then uh, how else do you engage your DAO and make sure that people actually get informed and then vote on uh, these decisions? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, I have to say we also haven't solved it. <laughs> um, what I can see what works quite well, negation of voting power. Like it's mm -hmm. nothing new, obviously it's existed before DAOs existed. Um, but I think we see more and more what we could call like protocol politicians, like, uh, like reputable members of our community that uh, dedicate more of their time towards one protocol to understand um, what kind of decisions have to be made and uh, have an informed opinion on what should be done. Um, and then token holders can delegate their vote to those protocol politicians, mm. which then can vote on their behalf. 
that's one thing. Of course, it's also great to get uh, token holders directly involved, but um, I think it's just a, a matter of like how much, yeah, how much attention you have and how many proposals there are. So even today, for me, it's very difficult to to keep up with all the different projects and what kind of proposals they are voting on. Mm. So uh, for me, I, I would also feel better by just trusting someone who I know um, who will execute on my behalf in a way that I would also like to see things executed uh, than being involved myself in every single vote. Hmm. Do you think delegates uh, should be incentivized or are they being incentivized in, in some way, aside from the intrinsic kind of like wish that the DAO succeeds and of course their own ownership in the tokens itself? Yeah, no, they definitely should be. Uh, I think it should not be underestimated how much work it is to to actually be actively involved in governance. And uh, of course, it should be something where the incentive they get is clearly aligned with the success of the project. Um, and yeah, ideally, it could be simply like vested tokens over a certain period of time um, or like having certain KPIs that are also relevant for everyone else working on this. Uh, but they should definitely be incentivized. Um, and I think it should also be a competitive in, uh, incentive. Uh, I think you, as a, as a, as a project, you want to have the, the smartest people working for you. So those people also have very limited time. So you have to make competitive offers. Right, right. So you would encourage all DAOs to consider setting aside, uh, some budget or some tokens, uh, in order to kind of pay essentially the protocol politicians to represent uh, all the token holders, evaluate and make the right decisions. Yes, totally. Yeah. I see. Yeah. So th that's an incredible trend. We talked about like the governance activation through delegation. We talked about, you know, token swaps, aligning interests. Uh, we, we talked about, you know, progressive decentralization using many of these tools. And these are definitely some of the most major trends that DAOs are going through today, right? Like everybody goes through these steps. So, what other trends or observations would you like to highlight in the DAO space today? Yeah, I think what we saw, like especially last year, was this, um, yeah, these ownership DAOs, uh, something that I also did not really anticipate, which I think was also strongly connected with the explosion of NFTs, uh, that suddenly, uh, within very short time, um, groups formed like Pisa DAO or People DAO. Uh, with the goal of yeah purchasing something, <laughs> and I think it was actually amazing. Um, not only because uh, like they, for example, Pisa Dao did some uh, like did some charity work, <laughs> but also because it uh, really brought this concept of DAOs more into the yeah public space. Like suddenly, people started discussing DAOs that never heard even of DAOs before. Um, and I think that was great, but I think now, hopefully we'll see that DAOs will also have like a larger impact beyond just like shared ownership. Mm. Um, I hope that, uh, again, like at the beginning we, we discussed of like, what, what, what does DAO actually stand for? Like, or how would you define a DAO? Mm. And, um, in my view, again, like, uh, I think DAOs are great because they, on an abstract level, they just are a framework of how to organize and how to how to yeah how to organize and align in an organization and i hope that we can 
more bridge the gap towards like actually existing organizations and apply what DAOs can do for us already uh, in other use cases. Uh, I think one thing that is interesting to see is how DAOs can uh, allow also um, to be more involved into like regular politics, not only protocol politicians, but actually uh, bridging the gap to real world politics and to align organizations on a global scale. Um, I think today what we see is we have lots of uh, issues or humanity is facing a lot of issues which can only be solved on a global scale. Um, but we are still like set in a mindset that is more on a like state level or like country level. And uh, I hope that maybe also through the house, who knows, <laughs> we'll be able to align centers better also on a more global scale and uh, eventually yeah, eventually can have uh, some impact at least on solving some of the bigger, larger problems. Um, I'm not sure if, if 2022 is the year where this happens, but I can see that there's at least, uh, I see that some, some politicians are evaluating like how Web3 could be utilized better for, for making those things happen. Uh, I saw that, for example, in Catalonia and Spain, um, yeah, the party that tries to separate from Spain is actually evaluating how to use Web3. Uh, and uh, we saw like experiments with something like KlimaDAO. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I'm really excited for. Uh, and yeah, I hope we will see more of those experiments soon. Absolutely, absolutely. Like I said, not just focusing on a particular product or or a Know, use case or to own a particular art piece or nft right but rather to coordinate people perhaps even on a global scale what a great way to end this episode Be right before we wrap up is there anything you'd just like to quickly shout out any call to action uh regarding gnosis or appreciation to any other DAOs or things you think uh, require more attention i think generally like if you are new to DAOs, um you should just try to jump in into one of those DAOs and see how they operate. And uh, right now there's a lot going on at Gnosis for sure, more than ever before. And um, and we're also growing. So in case you want to get involved, um, you can visit our forum, our Discord. It's like forum.gnosis.io. There's also the link to the Discord. And yeah, we are happy to, yeah, to welcome any new members. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like we're kind of in a situation right now where um, we have these big spin-offs from Nosa Safe and CowSwap. And with those, uh, like majority of people are also effectively leaving, uh, becoming their own. And so Nosa's core is again, fairly small. And that also implies that it has to grow again. And so, yeah, we are happy for new members and uh, yeah, we'll welcome you with open arms. <laughs> indeed, indeed. What a great place to start as well for anyone who's interested in DAOs. All right. Thank you so much again, Stefan, for joining us today and for this incredibly insightful conversation about DAOs. Thanks a lot, Sikai, for having me. Have a great day. Thank you. Have a great day. And for everyone else, see you next time.